Hi, this is Bruce Boxleitner, and you're listening to Then Is Now podcast. Terrificon, Connecticut's number one Comic-Con is back at Mohegan Sun on July 30th to August 1st. Meet actors and superheroes. Shop for cool stuff. It's three days of Comic-Con fun. Terrificon, Connecticut's number one Comic-Con at Mohegan Sun, July 30th through August 1st. Learn more at Terrificon.com. kind of a sick school is this? Strange things are afoot at the Circle K. You're going to need a bigger boat. Surely you can't be serious. I am serious, and don't call me Shirley. You got spunk. I hate spunk. Danger, Will Robinson. Danger. Oh, righty then. How you doing? Back off, man. I'm a scientist. Don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. Say hello to my little friend. I love to celebrate come in the morning. What are you people? On dope? Stop whining. I've got a crap on your deck that you choke a donkey. Who is your daddy? I'm sorry, but all questions must be submitted in writing. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Can I do that? I'll be back. And they know me! Show me the money! Don't! Up your nose, we do that before. What? I'm sailing! I'm sailing! Groovy. You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it. Pull it down. Nothing's never happened to say you're sorry. Here's looking at you, kid. We got no food! We got no jobs! Our pets' heads are falling off! Come to the coast, we get together, have a few laughs. Hear that, Elizabeth? I'm coming to join you, honey. I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV. I love it when a plan comes together. What we do is if we need that extra push over the cliff, you know what we do? Put it up to 11. 11, exactly. One louder. Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to 11. We're on a mission from God. Hello and welcome to Then Is Now Podcast. I am your host, Rigor. While the number of soap operas on TV are dwindling, they haven't fully disappeared from our collective zeitgeist, and the ones that are surviving are definitely thriving in the pop culture. On today's show, we have a guest who is more than just a soap actor. He's a writer, producer, and motivational speaker, and has dabbled in so many facets of the entertainment industry that you'll be surprised to learn what he's been up to. So sit back and get ready to learn about a cool guy, a fabulous actor, amazing speaker, and an all-around great human being. Class is in session. I have a bad feeling about this. How could I possibly be expected to handle school on a day like this? Food fight! Hey, you in my class? I am today. I think you should consider transferring to shop class. Woo-hoo! Now, now, very few students are severely injured in shop class. 
Bueller. When you were in school. Bueller. Did you ever cut class? Bueller. Yeah, I guess I did. Sure, most kids cut classes. Good. Sign this. Um, he's sick. I get so lonely when I hear that third attendance bell ring and all my kids are not here. Seven years of college down the drain. Fat, drunk, and stupid is no way to go through life, sir. You lack discipline. As long as I'm here, there will be no grades or gold stars or demerits. We're gonna have recess all the time. Woo! Go! Play and have fun now! Okay, folks, we've got an amazing guest for you today. Early on in his career, he was chosen from among 2,000 hopefuls by Academy Award-winning director John Avildsen to play the bad boy Mike Barnes in Karate Kid 3. After that, he went on to a successful career playing the alcoholic and trouble-ridden A.J. Quartermain on General Hospital, as well as Deacon Sharp on Bold and the Beautiful and Young and the Restless. Because the character of Deacon was so popular in Italy, and the fact that he can speak fluent Italian, it landed him on the Italian version of Dancing with the Stars, Ballando con le Stelle, where he lasted for nine weeks. He's an accomplished martial artist, a former bouncer, an actor, author, comedian, speaker, host, and producer. He's the creator of the series Studio City, which is on Amazon Prime, and boasts an amazing cast of soap veterans, as well as having been nominated for and won several Emmys in 2020, and just won in 2021 for Outstanding Limited Drama Series, as well as Outstanding Lighting Direction for a Drama or Digital Drama Series. He's been nominated twice for the Soap Opera Digest Award for Outstanding Male Newcomer in 1994, and Outstanding Supporting actor in 2005. He also received a nomination for the Daytime Emmy Awards Special Fan Award, being part of Daytime's favorite couple along with Katherine Kelly Lang on The Bold and the Beautiful in 2002, and the winner of the Emmy for Best Lead Actor in a Drama Series in 2020 for Studio City. He's an advice advocate for anti-bullying with organizations such as the Anti-Defamation League, and aside from speaking Italian, he studied the French, Russian, Chinese, and Japanese languages. He's the author of The Modern Gentleman, Cooking and Entertaining with Sean Kanan, as well as Success Factor X, which was named one of the 20 best inspirational books of the last two decades by the Book Authority. His new book, Way of the Cobra, will teach you to release your inner badass using his battle-tested tactics and time-proven strategies. Time to wake the beast. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the show Mr. Sean Kanan. Hey, Roger. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. It's awesome. I'm so honored to have you on the show. And first of all, congratulations on the Emmy wins. Yeah, you know, it was really exciting. Um, we we recently won for best show and best lighting and uh then we were nominated for six more the acting nominations came out and we got six of those so you know we kind of been like the little engine that could up against the big guys and it's uh it's just, it's been an amazing ride that's awesome that's awesome now one thing i i often ask guests that are new to the show um just to start off with and i'm sure you've been asked it a thousand times but can you just sort of tell us where you got your start into acting so I grew up in Western Pennsylvania, Newcastle, Pennsylvania. And when I was about 15, 14, 15 years old, I went to an open call with a friend at a modeling agency. He wanted to be a model and I tagged along and they wound up signing me. And uh, soon, soon after I wound up doing a, a commercial, which got me my SAG card. Um, and I didn't know it at the time, but that would prove to be a huge advantage once I really started my career in earnest uh, when I moved to Los Angeles in 1987. Came out to Los Angeles uh, from Boston where I was studying political science at Boston University. I was finishing my poli-sci degree at UCLA and knocking on a lot of doors, not too many of them opened. <laughs> and eventually, <laughs> um, slowly but surely, you know, started to get my foot in the door, uh, got some small TV parts, and then you know, I went to the open call for Karate Kid 3 and wound up getting the role of Mike Barnes. And that's really when things 
uh, significantly changed for me. That's amazing. That's amazing. And before we talk about Karate Kid 3, I, want, I have to ask you, because I remember when this first came on, you were on an episode of the Werewolf TV series with John J. York. Do you remember I, much of that? I, I remember quite a bit of it. And there's a lot of interesting ironies that run through that. So John J. York, I would later work with on General Hospital. Right. The female co-star on the show was a girl by the name of Cammie Cooper who played my character AJ's girlfriend when AJ was played by another actor. Oh, okay. And the other guy that was the other co-star with me was best friends with Billy Zabka, of course, who plays Johnny Lawrence from, you know, the Karate Kid films and right. also now on Kai. And Billy came to the set, and that's when I first met him. And this must have been in about 1988. So there are all these, you know, really weird, um, you know, intersectionality that right. happened from one little show that later as my career would go on, I would look back on and say, wow, that was really strange and, and, and cool. And did you get a chance to meet Chuck Connors? No, I didn't. That's right. Chuck Connors was on that show. Yeah. I did not get a chance to. And man, that would have been cool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and one other obscure question I had for you was um, a horror film you did called Hide and Go Shriek. Do you recall that oh, one? Oh, God. <laughs> oh, I, I, re I recall that vividly, my friend. <laughs> vividly yeah yeah that was a crappy horror <laughs> film i did but you know i kind of wanted to get my feet wet my manager at the time begged me not to do it but i did um i remember they they didn't want to pay the actors overtime and i kind of stood up for the actors and said listen if you don't pay us the overtime i'm going to the screen actors guild and i got the you'll never work in hollywood again speech oh wow and uh, uh on my first job so <laughs> And it was, it was, you know, it was, um, it's kind of, it's kind of gotten a bit of a cult following actually. I mean, it's one of those so bad that it's fun, you know, guilty pleasure horror films. Right. Right. Yeah. That's hilarious. I'm pretty sure I saw that on VHS when it came out. Um, but so, right, right, right there. When you say VHS, that, that you know, pretty much tells you uh, how long ago it was. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. Right. <laughs> oh man. So for Karate Kid 3, um, there was obviously a lot of competition for the role. Was the audition process, like, nerve-wracking? So uh, yeah, I've talked about this a lot, and so for people listening to the interview, if they've heard this before, forgive me, but <laughs> I got the role from an open call. Um, uh, I showed up at the studio. There must have been 1,500 people that were in line waiting to audition. John Avelson who had won the Academy Award for Karate Kid 1 and 2. He had won uh, the Oscar for a film about another pretty famous underdog, uh, Rocky Balboa was there. And, you know, I knew I had a very, very short amount of time to get Mr. Avelson's attention. And, uh, I did, and he stopped and asked me to do an improv with him, which I did. And kind of looked at me for a second and he said, okay, I believe that. And he sent me into the soundstage and there was Ralph Macchio. They had constructed a set and they asked me to do a scene with him. And, you know, I thought it went really well. And, uh, uh, they actually wound up hiring somebody else. And as luck and fortune would have it, the guy worked for about a week and he just wasn't able to deliver what they needed. So they, they let him go and uh, called me back and I wound up getting the role that changed my life. Wow. That's amazing. And you, your character was just so intense. I rewatched it with my wife the other night and uh, 
you know, I'd forgotten how intense he was. And, you know, in, in your book, you mentioned about how, which we will get to later on, but you ha admit that you had been bullied as a child. So did some of your memories of what the bullies were like, did that sort of inform your character? I think it did. I think it, it definitely informed my character. You know, there was a lot of, a lot of ad lib once we got to the final tournament scene, especially, you know, when you see Mike Barnes is just going after Daniel and, and, you know, screaming and yelling and taunting him. And, uh, I, you know, I don't really know where that came from, but it just sort of erupted from me and, and it, you know, I, I think it worked, but it, it, it was interesting. You know, at the time I never would have imagined that one of the most amazing byproducts of doing that role was that it would create an opportunity for me when I go and I speak to kids in schools about bullying to connect with them. Cause you know, when you go in as an adult, you know, you, you, you're already sort of behind the eight ball as far as connecting with kids that are a couple generations before you, you know, they have trouble right. relating to you. And what I do is I start out with that, you know, iconic scene where Daniel San is, you know, uh, really getting crushed by Mike Barnes and, after the clip ends, I say to the kids, would you believe that scary guy used to get bullied? And they sort of sit up in their seats and they listen a little bit. And I say, yeah, I used to, you know, I used to get bullied really severely. And it, it just gives me kind of an entree where I can reach them for a couple seconds. And when I, and when I do reach them, you know, it allows me to make a connection with them. And in doing that, you know, go into my presentation uh, you know, is facilitating a dialogue uh, about bullying. So it's it's been a really great gift that that I didn't anticipate having from uh, from that experience. That's incredible. That's so incredible. And so, um, because you were so intense in the role, was it hard when you went home at the end of the day to sort of shake that off? You know how sometimes actors can take home the emotion. No, I don't think so. Um, you know. Um, no, it, it wasn't. I mean, I was really so excited and, and so wrapped up in a good way that here I am. I'm like living my dream. I mean, you know, I, I was a guy that a year before I was playing the role, I had bought a ticket to go see Karate Kid 2 in the theater. Right. I mean, you know, the level of surrealness was significant. And so, um, you know, I was I was very easily able to turn that on and turn that off. Oh, that's good. That's good. And of course, uh, we have to mention that Bill Conti did the music for the Karate Kid movies as well as Ro the Rocky films. Did you get a, a chance at all to meet him on the set? I didn't. I did not. You know, I remember as a kid, one of the first 45s. No one's going to know what a 45 is, are they? It's a small record. Um, was was going to fly. You know, so I yeah. loved going to fly. I mean, I and I would have loved to have met Bill Conti. That yeah. Yeah, we, he's still going strong. We've got him coming on the show next month. You're kidding. How old is he? I, gee, I, off the top of my head, I don't know, but I'm thinking I mean, he's in his 70s, late 70s. Oh, really? Oh, that's not that old then. Okay. Yeah. All right. Wow. I mean, what a, what a talent. I mean, what what a just an absolute, you know, force. You know, you think of Bill Conti, John Williams, you know, the great composers, and these guys had the ability to take a film that is a good film and with their music elevated to being an even better film and uh you know yeah to, to have been in a film that bill conti worked on is a, a real honor yeah yeah it's amazing and you know music can make or break a film so absolutely 
it's really important. So let's move on to General Hospital here, which, of course, the audience knows it's my all-time favorite TV show. I've been watching it oh, since. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. I've been watching since 81, since I was 11. And um, I, I, I'm sure you've been asked these a thousand times, but I do have to ask how you got the role as A.J. Quartermain. So um, Steve Burton and I were good friends. And, uh, you know, when we were younger, we had a striking resemblance. I mean, we used to get confused uh, all the time around Hollywood. I was kind of the bad kid and he was the good one. And, you know, Steve, Steve would go into a bar or a restaurant and they were like, no, 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 no. You're not allowed back in here. And he would be like, Canaan, you know, <laughs> he would know it was me. And uh, uh, they decided they were going to uh, let go the actor that had been playing uh, Asia Quartermain. And Steve said, listen, you, you got to see my cousin because we're cousins by marriage and friends. And he said, you just, you have to see Sean. And they brought me in, and uh, I was the only guy at the time screen testing. And so uh, I, I screen tested, and I, I got the role. That's and, awesome. uh, and that was, again, that was a really seminal role that I, I had the, the you know, opportunity to play because you know, you're stepping into a show that has got an amazing, you know, at the time, I don't know, 40-year, whatever the history was. I mean, yeah. it started as a... Uh, you know, it started as a radio show then became a black and white TV show. Yep. And so, I mean, I was stepping into something that had such a rich television history um, that I was very fortunate to, uh, you know, kind of kind of stand on the shoulder of giants, so to speak. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And was Gloria Monty still producing? when you? No, came she was not. It was Wendy Rich was the producer when okay. I got there. That's what that's what I was I was wondering. Um, you know, I always loved you as AJ because I, I, I just liked the fact that. He was so flawed. He often made bad choices. Right. And, you know, you could relate to him as an audience member. And, you know, how... You know, Go ahead. I, I was just going to say, you know, I, I've always been fascinated with characters that live within the nanoshades of gray emotionally. I mean, um, you know, if, you, if you're playing a guy that's just a straight up good guy on a soap opera, that's really tough. Yeah. Because, you know, it, it's just kind of boring. And playing a bad guy is fun. But for me, you know, even with Deacon Sharp, I always tried to find those moments of humanity and those moments of even having like a weird sort of abstract code of honor, so to speak, that would make these guys that were incredibly flawed have sort of a, a, a sense of redemption about them, or at least they were on the path to trying to somehow be a better person. And I think in that struggle, people really related to the character because and I say this in my book, I mean, everybody has a private war they're fighting. You might not know what it is, but everybody has got something that swirls around within them that is either their demon or their quiet, you know, war. And, you know, we were able to really see what this kid AJ's was. And I, I think people really, I don't know, they connected with him. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And you were in the scene with um, where you jumped into the, the car and Jason jumped in after you with the convertible to try to stop you because right, you were drunk. Right. And, you know, yeah. that that's one of those those rare scenes that it pretty much changed the canvas for the rest of the show's history. It, it really did, didn't it? I mean, that's, you know, where Jason had his brain trauma and, it, you know, became, went from Jason Quartermain to Jason Morgan. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. And, you know, to be part of that is just amazing. Yeah, um, it was. Can you tell us a little bit about working with um, Edward Quartermain? Was was it David Lewis or John Engel that you worked with? I I, I can't be certain, but I I think I worked only with John Engel. I don't think I had the opportunity. 
I think David had just passed away when I got on, if I'm correct. Okay. Um, and if and if not, I imagine he was he was sick and wasn't working. Um, I love John Engel. John Engel was a uh, drama teacher at Hollywood High. Yeah. Uh, he had some very famous students, uh, among them Nicolas Cage. He was an incredibly kind man. He was a journeyman actor. He really was so excited to be there. You know, I mean, it really was a plum job. I mean, especially, you know, for, for a guy that's an older guy to step into getting this really great role. And he got great story too. Right. And, you know, you know, Edward Quarterbane was this kind of blustery, um, you know, you know, patriarch of the family. And John was a very kind, affable guy. You know, we called him Grandpa Engel. Uh, you know, Steve Burton and I just tortured him mercilessly because we loved him so much and, uh, you know, just used to love to take the piss out of him. And he had a great sense of humor. And, you know, we just always tease him like John was so happy to be there that he was always sweet and nice and, and upbeat to everybody. And Steve would be like, Engel, take it easy. You got the job, right? <laughs> you know, oh, you two rascals, shut up. You know, and I just loved working with them. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, what can you tell us about the, the wonderful Anna Lee? I always loved Lila Quartermain. You know, I mean, I knew Anna Lee to the extent that I knew her at work and I would see her at events sometimes. And from my perception, she seemed very much like Lila Quartermain. She was, there was something very regal about her. Yeah. Um, there was something almost royal about her. Um, it, just that she was sort of in a good way above it all that she just radiated uh, a kindness and an elegance and um and we teased her too and you know what she had a, and she had a great sense of humor um she really did and it was it was wonderful having the honor of working with her and you know you're talking about somebody that was in the sound of music for god's sake right i mean you know so uh it just was such an honor to work with you know an actress of her caliber and she she was such a great actress because you could see her emotion in her face. Like when, for example, when AJ would do something that was you know horrifying to the family, right. and they were all mad at him, she wasn't mad. She was disappointed, right. but you disappointed. could see in her eyes that she still yeah. loved your character. Yeah, yeah, and I just think that's a strong choice to make. And um, she just exuded that love. And I think again, that's you know I think one of the reasons that people connect with soap operas so loyally is that they're just invested in the characters. You know, they, they're, they've got an emotional investment in these characters and they feel like they know them. Right, right. And we, when, when um, AJ got killed off for the, I don't know, third or fourth time, um, right. we actually saw him go off to heaven with Edward mm -hmm. and Lila, which generally means it's, the character's not going to come back except as a ghost. Would you consider right. doing that? Would I consider what? Going back to General Hospital? As a ghost? No, I don't think so. No, I, I really don't. I'm, you know, I've got, I'm, I'm, I'm very fortunate right now that I've got a lot of other interesting things going on. I, I think that that, that period of my career has uh, come and gone and uh, I'm so appreciative for it, but I am on to other things. Right, right. And now before we get into Studio City, I just want to ask you about your transition from AJ Quartermain to Deacon Sharp. Was it difficult to move to a different soap or was it just sort of, you know, kind of the same ball game? No, it was great. Um, I, I love I love and loved Bold and Beautiful to this day. It was the best work experience I've ever had on television. I just clicked with that character. And I think it I think it allowed me to 
kind of explore every sort of cool aspect that I wish I had in my personality, you know, and play it as Deacon. You know, I, I always say Deacon was way cooler than Sean, but uh, I, I had so much damn fun doing it. And um, it, it wasn't tough at all. And, uh, you know, that is something that I would potentially consider revisiting. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. My mother always loved you on, on that. And she was, I was like, Oh yeah, he, Deacon's so much better than that. AJ. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I just, I just never feel like AJ really got a fair shake uh, as a character right. on the show. And, you know, I, I just, for me, I just had such a wonderful experience you know, working for Brad Bell and, and you know, the show is a 30 minute show. It moves more quickly. Right. You know, it, it opened up so many amazing opportunities for me because it, you know, is syndicated in so many different markets around the world. And, you know, you would, you had mentioned it when you were giving me that really, really long and gracious introduction <laughs> that I was able to go over and do uh, dancing with the stars in Italy. And that was a direct result of, you know, how popular Bold and the Beautiful is uh, in Italy. Yeah, yeah. Can you tell us about that? It was an amazing experience. Um, I had never lived in a foreign country before. One of the things that I did in my life, one of the few things I did that was very smart, was when I realized how popular the Bold and the Beautiful was and is in Italy, I began studying Italian. And I figured if I could speak Italian, I might have a chance at having like a whole sort of second career opportunity in Italy. And yeah. so I worked, I worked really, really diligently studying, uh, you know, private lessons, class lessons, I, anything you name, I studied really hard for over a decade and ultimately was able to do Dancing with the Stars. Uh, I lived in Rome for probably about six months. And uh, it was to this date, one of the most incredible life-changing experiences for a young single American boy to have uh, living in Rome. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. I managed to get there myself a few years ago for two weeks and I, I crammed for the six months leading up to that to try and learn the language. And I was yeah. able to get, to, get by, you know? Yeah. Good, good. My aunt came, she speaks fluent. So she was our guide. Oh, cool. You know? So it was, it was fun though. It was nice to meet my cousins. It's such, it's such a beautiful place. Oh, yeah. See, you'll kind of, kind of see where you came from, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my wife and I were married there. We oh, had our wow. honeymoon there. We, I mean, I've, I've probably, I can't count how many times I've been there. And to the, to this date, some of my very closest friends in the world live there. So for me, I kind of consider it my second home. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, I've, I've got to go back sometime soon. Rise and shine, my sinners. When Father Evil starts his day, he gets a little deadly. Deadly Grounds Coffee has the richest, smoothest flavor you'll find anywhere. It's sinfully delicious. Once you go deadly, you never go back. Order yours at getdeadly.com. Coffee's so good, it's scary. Shark Bites, Shark Bites Podcast. It's the greatest show in history. From the Dorkening Network, hosted by a nerd who's named Patsy. From movie reviews to tips on surviving the coronavirus, Shark Bites has it all. Follow us on Facebook and suggest topics at sharkbitespod at gmail.com. Available on iTunes, 
Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Greetings, this is Mr. Lobo. Are you a sinsomniac? Do you stay up late and watch what normal people call bad movies till dawn? Black and white low-budget pot boilers, box office bombs, West German talking car movies, rock bands versus monster movies, broken down school films, midget zombie and midget spy flicks, guys in gorilla suit movies, even old TV commercials, inappropriate cartoons, drive-in snack bar ads, and worse? <clears throat> well, we like to say they're not bad movies just misunderstood stay up late with miss mittens your host mr lobo and a revolving door of special guests fellow horror movie hosts robot monsters and lovely real seven girls for a late night tv slumber party that we call cinema insomnia you can watch us on channel osi 74 for roku we even have some episodes on amazon and alpha video dvd you may never get a good night's sleep again So let's talk Studio City. Sure. How did that come about? So Studio City is a show that I've been trying to get made for a very, very long time uh, under different names and in different incarnations and through, you know, the, the right series of uh, professional relationships, not, not the least of which is, you know, my wife, Michelle, who is now an Emmy award-winning producer. Um, we, we got it made and, uh, you know, got it on Amazon Prime, Amazon Prime um, largely because of our director and showrunner, Timothy Woodward Jr. Yeah. And it's been a dream come true. I mean, you know, to, to literally have an, an embryonic idea that grows into something that you're on set shooting that then grows into something that's, you know, now available for the public to see that then grows into something that like the public actually likes and then becomes you know, awarded. It's, it's, it's crazy. And, um, it's, it's been a dream come true. You know, they say, write what you know, and, uh, you know, for better, or for worse, I've, you know, I know what it's like to be an actor in daytime television, having done it off and on since 19, uh, 1992. And, yeah. you know, I was, I was always fascinated with the idea of playing a guy that ostensibly the audience might not like, cause they're like, you know, what kind of problems does he have? He's a, he's a TV star and a soap opera. But then you realize he's well, he's kind of an aging TV star. What does that come with? And he's also a very flawed guy who struggles with his demons. And he's also a guy that's got all sorts of family stuff. And he's a guy that's got all sorts of stuff at work like everybody has. And you, you take this guy that you initially see and may not be able to relate to. And as the emotional layers of the onion get peeled back, you know, I wanted the audience to be like, wow, I can really relate to this guy that I thought was going to be completely unrelatable. And it's amazing because you, you, first of all, you cram so much into each episode in terms of themes and what happens. And, and the, the one line though, to me that always stands out and, and it recurred a couple of times in the previously on, um, you know, at the beginning of each episode where he's, he's talking to uh, Carolyn Hennessy's character and he says, you know, I was the, the two time soap opera fan awards runner up, <laughs> you know, <laughs> <laughs> he was the runner-up, and that, that whole line yeah. tells you right there who he is and what he's struggling with. <laughs> Let me remind you that for the last two years, I've been the Soap Opera Fan Awards runner-up, okay? America loves Dr. Pierce Hartley. You know, I mean, I, I, I think that uh, soap operas 
don't get a lot of the respect that they deserve. You know, they're sort of like the redheaded stepchild of uh, the entertainment industry. I agree. And and I wanted to show what it's like to be a guy that is really because this is something I can relate to. And you know, this guy is Sam Stevens is very close to who I am. I mean, I joke that I'm kind of like, you know, the original Xerox copy, and he's like seven seven or eight xerox copies where it's it's faded you know he he does he doesn't maybe have some of the life lessons i've already learned but um you know he's a guy that's trying to have some kind of relevance and and have some kind of i don't know input that's meaningful in the world uh emotionally with the people in his life and not just be a guy that's sort of you know shiny on tv saying lines somebody else wrote and he's a guy that's very flawed and he's he's trying to figure it out very slowly and piece by piece through hitting his head on the wall and and you know these these baptisms by fire he's being forced to learn life lessons and that's kind of how it's been for me right right and in, in sam's pursuit of relevance it gets to the point of obsession where he's focusing on his career. Like he wants to get the, he wants to be an action star. He doesn't want to be an aging soap star to the point though, where he's, he's not calling his newly found daughter or he's not returning her calls. He's only at the last minute coming to grips with the fact that his father or his stepfather is having issues. So do you think he's, he's got somewhat of a narcissist? I don't think he's a narcissist. I think he's, he's a guy that was, you know, largely, largely matured in the bubble of, you know, B minus level fame. And I think that as he's matured into adulthood, he's kind of, he's kind of had suspended animation emotionally because there's some things he just sort of never learned because things have been easy for him in some respects. And, and, and it's, it's bred sort of a, I don't know, I guess, I guess a non-malicious thoughtlessness and a, a selfishness and as he's becoming more connected with the people in his life he's realizing that what he does for a living is not nearly as important as who he is as a person and he's he's kind of starting to realize that he needs to he needs to mature and up his game as a human being right and and he's got a long way to go but i think uh i i have uh I have faith in, in young Sam. Okay. So do I. <laughs> I'm pulling for him. Yeah, well, especially with the, with the um, co-star there, that's kind of, you know, uh, edging him off of the show, the, sh- the show within the show. Yeah. You know? It's like, you, yeah. you're, you're rooting for him to just get back at that guy. <laughs> exactly. Well, I mean, I think the thing is this, I think Sam's a really good actor and I think he loves acting. I mean, I don't, I don't think he's, you know, he doesn't want to be a hack. He doesn't want to be just some guy on a soap opera. That's sort of a, a pretty face, albeit aging. I think he really wants to have some relevance and, and be respected by his peers. And I think that that's a lot of what he's fighting for too, which when you really distill that, that's, it's a, it's a longing to be loved. Right. And when you really distill that further, is it important to be loved by people that don't even know you that watch you on TV? Or is it better to be loved by the people that are actually in your life? Right. And it's it's and it's easier to be loved by people that don't know you and only love you for your character on TV because they don't have to see, you know, your your foibles and your flaws. You don't have to show that. Right. So it's easier to be loved by them. 
if you're going to really be loved by the people in your life, you know, they have to love you in, in spite of those, those shortcomings. Oh yeah. Unconditional, which, which, which takes vulnerability. You know, you have to show the vulnerability of who you really are. And that's, and that's the scary thing for him. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't want to give too much away for those who haven't watched the show. And if you haven't shame on you, you need to get to Amazon and watch it now. That's right. But there's a scene towards one of the last couple of episodes where there's a hostage situation. I won't say any more than that, but right. what's going on through Sam's head you can totally see not only is he just a brilliant actor, but there's so much more going on between the other characters around him. But, you know, that was such a, a, a powerful scene. Thank you. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny you say he's a brilliant actor because I, I don't really think in that moment he was acting. I really think once, once the guy with the gun articulated why he was there, I, I think it really moved Sam. And I, I think, you know, as the situation builds to a crescendo and, and ultimately um, somewhat resolves, I, I think Sam really feels an emotional connection of wanting to do what he can do to try and help this guy who really isn't a bad guy. He's just a desperate soul fighting to, you know, save something that's very important to him. And I, I, I didn't think it was an act. At least that's not that's not how I played it. I played it that it was really, you know, Sam's humanity was shining through. Right. Okay. Yeah. Because now when you say that, I can see that. And it's almost a method for Sam to learn how to be a better actor through right. his connection with what's going on there because he's so disconnected in trying to, you know, continue his career or better his career. I think as actors, there's a couple ways that, that we become better actors. And one of them is to, to face a challenge and to overcome it. I think another way is to actually experience uh, a profound emotion in your life that you are then able to draw upon that experience and bring it to your work. And I think, um, you know, an, an, another way, which, which may not be relevant to this conversation, is that by expanding your world, traveling, meeting new and interesting people, experiencing new things you know you deepen as a human being which ultimately and hopefully deepens you as an actor but i think like with sam when he starts to experience i don't know his own humanity um i, I think it deepens him and makes him want more of it and also realize maybe what is important and what isn't quite as important Right, right, exactly. And speaking of great acting, my God, you've got a powerhouse cast there, Tristan Rogers and Carolyn Hennessy and, yeah. you know, Sarah Brown, just to name a handful of them that, oh, my God. Right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm so fortunate to have these unbelievable actors, um, you know, they're, they're, they're friends, they're colleagues, they're, you know, I mean, every time I work with any of them, they make my work better. And, um, you know, this really is, in a lot of ways, a dream job. Oh, yeah. And it's it's great seeing Tristan play against type. You know, he was, Robert Scorpio was always one of my heroes growing up. And I've been trying to get him on the show. And it's funny because his his publicist or his manager or whatever is like kind of hemming and hawing. And, and I'm, so I'm at the point now where I dug out a picture I drew of him when I was 17. I'm going to scan it in and send it to him and say, <laughs> look it, he's my hero. <laughs> you know, this conversation with Tristan started a long time ago. I live in Palm Springs and so does Tristan. And we've done a play together. And I said, listen, Tris, I said, I'm going to write you a part. And I said, if you if you trust me, I said, it is going to show you in a light that nobody has ever seen before. And I know you can do this kind of work. I know what's inside of you. 
And uh, I said, this isn't going to be Robert Scorpio or Colin. What's his name? This is going to show Tristan Rogers, absolute base humanity and talent as an actor. And to his credit, he has taken what has been written for him and he has elevated it uh, far beyond above and beyond what I could have imagined. Oh, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And uh, I can't stop laughing whenever Carolyn Hennessy is doing stuff. Oh my God. She's just so brilliant. She, you know, she kills me. I mean, we have so much fun together. And a lot of times, you know, there's just ad libs. I mean, there's this one ad lib from the last episodes we did that I just love. I mean, she's pissed at me. And cause you know, she's, you know, Sam is always kind of like stirring up shit. And she says, do you have any idea what I do on this show? And I'm like, no, but I'm pretty sure it has to do with a pitchfork. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, something to do with a pitchfork. And we just kind of go back and forth. And, you know, sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. But it's always fun and always kind of keeps me on my toes. And she's just, God, she's just such a brilliant actress. I mean, you know, actors are always kissing each other's asses and saying how brilliant and amazing each other are. And it's pretty nauseating. I'll give you that. But, man, she really is. I mean, she just... She doesn't take herself too seriously. She's a ton of fun to work with. And she's just, um, she, you know, I, I always say she's a force of nature. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, like I said before, you, you managed to cram so much into one episode, but the episodes are rather short. What was the decision to make them short? Yeah. So really, that was a function of, you know, what do we have to work with budget wise and what do we want to achieve? And, um, you know, Entertainment has changed a lot now. Like gone are the days when you meet with family in the living room on Thursday at 8 p.m. to watch a show. Right. You know, people want to watch what they want to watch, when they want to watch it, and on what device they want to watch it on. And so given that, this this digital category really seemed to have a lot of appeal. Um, we thought it was a really great way to get people to watch the show with a modest commitment of time. But then the challenge is you've got a modest commitment of time. How do I get people hooked to the characters, hooked to the storyline? And, and again, it was a function of, you know, us doing this on a shoestring. But, you know, the, I think the goal now is that we want to consider really taking this to a longer format. Oh, cool. Uh, now, is there when is season two coming up? Well, that is that is in discussion as we speak. Oh, OK, awesome. Yeah. Awesome. And just the last thing I wanted to comment on about the show that I love, because I love everything about it. And when you watch the episode, it seems like you watched a two hour movie within the span of, you know, what, 10 to 20 minutes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, we cram a lot in there. Oh, yeah. And it's it's amazing. And But the music, especially the final the final episode, the music is very cinematic. It is. And, you know, you know, we just won for outstanding lighting, which yes. is the cinema, largely the cinematography and the lighting. And that is a complete testament to our, our director, Timothy Woodward Jr., and our, our cinematographer, Pablo Diaz. And I, Pablo is filming a movie right now in Spain, and we called him to congratulate him, and he like literally couldn't talk. Because for, for a DP to win an Emmy is a really it's, – it, look, it's a big deal for anyone to win one. Um, you know, this is my first Emmy in 30-plus years of daytime. Wow. Uh, so, I mean, I'm ecstatic about it, too, and to win with my wife, but I'm sorry, I'm digressing. But, but the, <laughs> the cinematic, the cinematic look that the film has, we were nominated for best lighting direction against the big budget shows like bold and the beautiful. And I think general hospital and yeah. we won. And I'm, I'm, I'm blown away. I mean, I'm literally beyond humbled that, like I said, we're the little engine that could. And, uh, 
you know, we, we won. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So let's move on to your books here. Um, I think I mentioned to you via email a while ago that uh, uh, I bought your book, Success Factor X, and I loved it so much, I gave it to my son. Oh, excellent. Oh, yeah. It's such a great thing. And now you've got Way of the Cobra. Um, can, can I ask first, what got you into writing these books, as well as your cooking book? You know, I, I've written for a long time. I mean, for about as long as I could remember, I've written. I, I wrote a film that uh, was called Chasing Holden that Lionsgate distributed. Um, I love writing. My father's... Uh, a retired successful businessman who uh, is now an author with, I don't know, he's probably on his like sixth or seventh. No, he's probably on his eighth book now. So it's kind of in our family. My sister has a book that just came out. So we have a, a bit of a, a literary competition in the family. You know, I, I was working on a book that had a lot of the same essence and source material that's in Way of the Cobra. But honestly, I decided that with the success of Cobra Kai, that it's become this worldwide, you know, zeitgeist. I was going to tap into that so that I could have, you know, more of a built-in audience of people that would buy the book because I really believe that the information in this book is so transformative and has the ability to help so many people that I wanted to get get it into as many people's hands as possible. And, you know, if I was going to call it its original title, it could have been an excellent book, but maybe 10 people would have bought it. And, you know, calling it Way of the Cobra, even though it's not a book about martial arts and it's not specifically a book about Cobra Kai, um, gives it kind of a, a, a built-in, I don't know, um, recognizability uh, that, that, that makes it attractive to a wider group of people. Right, right. It rings a bell in the back of your head. There's a familiarity to it. Yes. And especially the structure. It's the book is a dojo. You're the student going yes. in to learn. You know, each chapter is one of the different belts from white belt to black belt. And right. what's really funny talking to you now and, and just as I read it, I could hear your voice like your voice read the book. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, it, look, it's you know, it's 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 a cheeky voice. It's 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 kind of, you know, sarcastic and funny and I like to think that's kind of how I am, but I also think <laughs> it's it's peppered with really good information. Look, here's the deal. You know, I decided that I needed to be very honest in this book. Otherwise, how how is the person who's the reader going to trust me? So in order right. to do that, I shared some stuff that's very personal and vulnerable about myself. And then I also say in the book, look, before you think like I'm living, you know, in a in a hut on the mountaintop of Timbuktu, <laughs> levitating three feet above the ground because I'm so zenned out. I wrote this book because I've made every mistake in the book. Right. And I continue to make some. And, you know, and it's like I'm just I'm just another guy trying to figure it out, too. But maybe by talking about it a little bit, sharing some of the things that I've learned, some of the things that have allowed me to achieve some success, you know, I, I can. I can do better myself and I can help some other people do better. And it's, it's just really incredible because it's like it's stuff that people like myself deal with lack of motivation, procrastination, getting stressed out, feeling unproductive. You know, it's like, you've got, a, you don't just talk about that stuff. You give the reader uh, methods on how to deal with those things. Like, yeah. like the inner critic, you know, when I was reading the chapter, I'm like, how do we get rid of that inner critic? And you tell us how to do it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of stuff that we all deal with. And, you know, one of the biggest things I talk about is the concept of story, how human beings attach stories that are generally negative to events. You know, uh, there's a, an event or circumstance 
hits us. And we tend to give it a binary association. It's good, it's bad, it's positive, it's negative. Well, rarely are we able to see the 30,000 foot view, meaning what might ostensibly initially seem like a negative event, in quotes, with the expansion of time proves to be very beneficial. And I talk about, you know, I was divorced and at the time it was absolutely and utterly crushing to me. Yeah. But had I not been divorced, it wouldn't have opened me up to eventually meet my wife, Michelle, who is my absolute soulmate, my everything. And I say, you know, if I knew at the time that this painful experience of divorce was ultimately going to be a positive thing for me to look at all the things I did wrong, to make some changes and go out and be a guy that a woman like Michelle would want to be with, would I have, would I have attached such a negative story to it? Right. Right. And so, and so given that, um, what I talk about in the book is look, human beings are horrendous historians. And by that, I mean, if you took something that was a really important event in your life, something you really know what happened and you recounted it to me and made it into a movie. And then there was a movie of what actually legitimately 100% happened. And we watched them side by side, even though you're giving your honest recollection of those events, it's probably only about 40% accurate. I mean, because, because your perception is colored through the prism of things like you're a man. You're, you live in America, you live in 2020, 2021, not 1956. You know, I mean, it's like all these different things color how you would express and recount something that's happening. Okay. Yeah. So if we agree that human beings really are not great historians, yet we attach stories to events that happen, why not attach a positive story to it that is going to motivate and drive you? rather than a negative story that you're going to wear around your neck like an albatross and it's going to preclude you from achieving your success. And I'll, I'll, I'll cap it off with one last thing, and it, it's a quick story. But you take two boys raised in identical households. The father is an abusive alcoholic, can't keep a job, you know, uh, terrifies his family, drinks away all the money. First son grows up to mirror his father's behavior. He says, you know, that's just who I am. It's in my DNA. You know, that's that's the story he's attached to. My dad's an alcoholic. I'm going to grow up to be an alcoholic. That's who I am. The second boy says, you know what? I am never going to put my family at risk. I'm never going to make them feel insecure. I'm, I'm not going to drink. Or if I drink, I'm going to drink extremely responsibly. And it completely changes the trajectory of his life. And he becomes a well-balanced, successful human being. Identical circumstances, different stories attached to a series of, of experiences makes all the difference. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, to your point about seeing the positive in something that's potentially negative, uh, for example, and I don't think I've mentioned this on the show before, when COVID started, I got put on furlough and everybody Uh, else around me was all negative about it and everything. And yeah, a lot of negativity came out of it and, you know, bad things. But for me, there was a silver lining. It was the opportunity to finally dive into my podcast full time, 100%. And around that time, I had heard you on an interview and you were talking about, you know, get up an hour earlier, you know, do do this, you know, do all these things that you've been meaning to do. And so I I applied that and I did it. And then the thing I love about this book is, you know, people always go, oh, well, there's no handbook for life. I feel that this book is the closest thing we're ever going to get to a handbook to help us get through the obstacles. You know, I mean, one of the things I say in the book is the planet number three, you know, does not come 
with a, a yeah. playbook. <laughs> right. It doesn't come with an instruction book, but you know, you're right. This is pretty damn close. And I wish somebody gave me this book at some point in my life. And, and that's not just, you know, sort of tooting my own horn. There's a lot of good information in here. Um, some of which is original stuff I've come up with and other is it's, you know, information that I've, you know, inferred and digested from some of the great minds uh, across time and throughout the world. But I believe there are certain things that are universal truths. You know, Jesus said, that which you reap, so shall you sow. Buddha said, the law of karma, cause and effect. It's all sort of the same thing. There's right. certain things that just are. And I, I, I say in the book, I think it's in the introduction uh, or in, in one of the early chapters, I say, look, you know, a lot of what you read in this book, you already know. You've heard it before. My hope is that I'm finally going to be the messenger that's going to allow you to to digest and comprehend it and take action. You know, it's that sort of thing when you're a 16 year old boy and you've got that dynamic with your father where you're just rebelling against anything he says. And even if your dad's giving you great information, you can't hear it because it's dad saying it. You know what I mean? And right. I'm kind of hoping that maybe I'm telling you something that you even heard from your father, but you couldn't really hear and now you're ready to hear it because I'm delivering it in a different package. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, that's one thing on this show. We always talk about pop culture of the past, you know, cool stuff that the young generation missed out on. And we tell people to, you know, expose them to this stuff. And I think this book is one of those things, uh, if not the most important thing that they could do for a young person in their life is get Absolutely. them this book and have them read it or read it to uh, them if you have to. Thank you so much. Yeah. And I mean, if, if people... Uh, want to get it it's real simple you just go to waythecobra.com you can order it i'll sign it for you i'll send it out and um you know one of the catchphrases is unleash your inner badass and you know everybody's got an inner badass it may be yet undiscovered it may be you know ignored needs to be dusted off and that inner badass is being a cobra and cobra is an acronym formed from the words character optimization balance respect and abundance and everybody has one inside of them. And, and, you know, a Cobra is somebody that is living their most best authentic life and achieving the goals. Absolutely. Absolutely. Love it so much. So Sean, thank you for coming on the show. Do, do you have any um, projects coming up that you want to plug? Um, wow. Uh, do I have any projects coming up? Uh, I have a really cool sci-fi movie coming out uh, in December, which is called uh, Colonials. Um, and I just finished two uh, two back-to-back -back films with Bruce Willis. Uh, I was in Puerto Rico for about a month and a half shooting two different films. One is called Killing Field. One is called The Fortress. And, um, you know, this has just been an absolutely amazing year for me. If you would have told me at the beginning of uh, a year when, you know, we're dealing with a, a pandemic that I would have the good fortune of, of achieving a lot of this stuff, I would have said you're crazy. And, you know, I don't, I don't say that as a way of impressing people. I have a, I'm saying it as a way of impressing upon you what is possible when you make some significant but simple changes in your life. And, and that's a lot of what I talk about in the book. Awesome. Awesome. So, Sean, you have an open invitation to come back anytime you Thank want to you. promote a book, your, your show, you know, season two of Studio City, anything you want, man. I Roger, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It was a pleasure talking to you. And I want to wish you all the best. And we will talk again, my friend. Excellent. Take care. Okay. Take all care. Bye-bye. Right. Bye.
Well, I hope you enjoyed my interview with the awesome Sean Kanan. Don't forget to check out his Emmy-winning series, Studio City, on Amazon, as well as his new book, Way of the Cobra. Remember, you can send your feedback to thenisnow42 at gmail.com. You can also join in the conversation at our Facebook Then Is Now podcast group. Then Is Now podcast is a proud member of the Dorkening Podcast Network, so please be sure to check out the other great shows there at thedorkening.com. You can also visit our website at havenpodcasts.com, where you'll find our sister show, The East Meets the West, in which we discuss Shaw Brothers films and spaghetti western movies. And Then Is Now is on YouTube, so please visit our YouTube page at youtube.com slash user slash UncleDeath1 to get the latest videos as well as other fun videos. Please subscribe to our YouTube page and also share the video versions of our podcast with your friends and get them to subscribe as well. Don't forget to go wherever you download your podcast from and leave us a great review so that more listeners can find us. You can find us on all the podcasting apps, especially the big three, iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. Class dismissed. is intended for entertainment, educational, and informational purposes only. Sounds, music, and clips played during this podcast are the property of their copyright holders. All original content is copyright Jupiter Media. Mind you that for the last two years, I've been the Soap Opera Fan Awards runner-up, okay? America loves Dr. Pierce Hartley. For more shows like the one you just heard, check out the Dorkening Podcast Network at thedorkening.com.